I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Everyone's worried about money right now, but Money Clinic is here to help. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's Consumer Editor. Even if you don't want to come on as a guest, we'd like to hear your ideas for money-related topics you'd like to learn more about on the show. Email us via money at ft.com and let us know what's on your mind. In this week's episode of Money Clinic, we're going to give you another chance to meet someone who's never been shy about causing a stir. That's the sound of the shredder in which the popular British comedian Joe Lyser apparently got rid of £10,000 in a protest against David Beckham's reported sponsorship deal with FIFA, hosts of the World Cup in Qatar. Joe had called on David Beckham to drop his job as a World Cup ambassador because of Qatar's record on LGBTQ rights. Homosexuality is illegal there. When Beckham didn't respond, Joe went ahead with his promise to destroy his own money. Except, of course, he didn't. Joe Lyser is, after all, not just a comedian, but also a consumer champion with his own long-running show on British TV. He later revealed that he'd actually donated the money he pretended to shred to LGBTQ charities. Welcome to Money Clinic, the podcast from the Financial Times about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's Consumer Editor. What you're about to hear is my conversation with Joe Lysett here in the FT studio last year. We thought we'd rerun this episode because it's full of useful tips from one of the UK's biggest and funniest consumer champions. So sit back, listen, enjoy. Oh, and keep a pen or pencil handy because Joe has got some great advice on how to complain effectively. I'm thrilled to be in this sort of sci-fi building that the FT is. Well, how does it feel to be inside the Financial Times? I feel like I shouldn't be here, like I'm a fraudster, <laughs> that like people with proper jobs are sort of wandering around, wondering why I'm here. Well, you have a huge amount of respect from many of my journalistic colleagues upstairs. We think you're like a journalist. I find that ridiculous, but I like, I'll take it. You get great results. Now, Joe Lysett's got your back. The third series is about to kick off on, on Channel 4. Now, I described it in my Financial Times column once as being like Watchdog, but on drugs, which I'm amazed that they actually printed. Yeah. But they did. I mean, how would you describe your show? I once described it as like a cross between Watchdog and RuPaul's Drag Race. (laughs) And I think that's even more accurate for this series because we actually have two of the queens from Drag Race popping up. There's a story that I'm sure we'll talk about to do with uh, Yop, the yogurt drink. 
Um, we have Tia Coffey, who is a, a, an astounding drag queen who does a yop mega mix in that episode. Wow. So you definitely don't get on Watchdog. It's a, it's a sort of camp, silly, daft entertainment show with a, a real grounding in um, solid journalism and consumer affairs, I suppose. Yeah, but I think the genius thing is that it makes it fun to watch. We'll talk later on what's coming up in the new series, but first I wanted to ask you the same question that I ask everyone who comes on The Money Clinic, which is, what's your earliest money memory? It involves theft, actually. Go on. Yeah. This is the best story we've probably ever had. Well, that's interesting. I, I always thought I was quite a... When people said or asked me what were you like as a kid, I always said I was very well behaved. I just talked in class. That was, But actually, I just remembered there was a game I wanted to buy. I love video games and I can't remember what it was, but I'm guessing it was for the PlayStation 1. Let's say it was £20. And I had £10, but I needed another 10 And I was sat in my dad's car... And his wallet was on the side and I was just sort of looking at it with curiosity. And in there was a crisp £10 note. So I took it and uh, then I bought the game and uh, got away with it. He didn't ever find out? I think, well, he didn't ever, I was never reprimanded, so probably not. Let's hope he doesn't listen to the Money Clinic podcast. Yeah, (laughs) I owe you you a tenner, Dad, if you're listening. But Joe's natural tendency towards justice didn't come from a consumer impulse or even a sense of thriftiness, but from his upbringing in Birmingham, city of Cadbury's chocolate. I'm not sort of weirdly not that great at complaining. So I don't, you know, I don't kick up a fuss when I'm in a restaurant if something's not quite right, because mainly I don't want people to be like, oh, that Joe Lysa is in, he's a a real strop. I just feel I'm more, I play the long game. I can definitely do it over email, but also I like... I'm a bit like Stalin. I'll wait 30 years and then I'll have you. And it's... I've never just... Never compared myself to Stalin before, but I'm going to run with it. Yeah, uh, so the, the, the kind of injustices that I definitely first felt uh, really cross about was kind of seeing people in the working world being treated badly by the people that they were working for, essentially. A little bit with my parents, because my mum worked for Cadbury's and worked there for a long, long time. And then they were bought out by Kraft. And, you know, all these executives came in and said, oh, no, no one's going to be made redundant. Everyone's going to be fine. It's going to be all the same. And then obviously, a year or so later down the line, redundancies all over the place. They change things all over the place. And it just, it's the sort of, um, the way that corporations treat people there's a real indignity to it sometimes and obviously companies exist solely for profit that's what they do and uh, sometimes when they get massive particularly the kind of thirst for profit outweighs any kind of humanity i suppose and that um i think is wrong and uh, makes me cross you're kind of like an activist investor i don't know if you've heard of esg investing it's a kind of shorthand for Ethical. Ethical investing, environmental investing. But this is something that younger investors in particular are really, really keen to put their money where their mouth is and actually make a change with their own finances that could better the planet. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to do ESG. I didn't know it was called ESG. Um, Sounds like a drug, really, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, going mad on ESG. (laughs) When I first started getting some telly money in, I didn't know what to do with it. And I sort of consulted a few friends. There was one investment strategy which I thought was quite interesting, which is some, um, is it Ray Dalio's um, 
all-weather approach where you sort of split it between, I think you do 30% in long-term bonds, 30% in short-term bonds, bit on the stock market, bit in commodities, bit in gold. And the idea is that if there's a big crash, then the other, the gold will go up and kind of take the kind of the hit out of it. And I thought, oh, that seems interesting. But then the more I looked into that, the more I thought, well, if I'm just buying into the stock market at large, then my money's going into arms and all these uh, tobacco, all these things that uh, I don't necessarily believe in, oil. So I sort of explored a bit more with a financial advisor. And yeah, hopefully, I mean, it's so difficult to tell, isn't it? Because they all these ethical funds say that they're ethical, but I'm not checking. I haven't got time to go through what they're all up to. So you're sort of trusting that they your measure of ethical is similar to theirs but i think it's really good it's really good that it's coming to the fore really because it's um that's the power of money isn't it that if if we all put it in certain places i mean the GameStop thing that happened i loved all of that i mean that that is sort of peak what i would want to be involved in i bought game shop shares and my financial advisor was like what are you doing I was like, I'm, I'm, hold, I'm holding. I was really, I became one of those like... Have you still got them? I've still got them, yeah. I'm sure they're worth dust now, but well, it was fun to be part of uh, sticking it up to the man for a little while. And that that was why you why you bought them, because you thought this yeah. is the, the little guy yeah, basically. fighting back against the, yeah. the big nasty hedge funds. Well, that's interesting. You know what? I didn't think that you would be an investor. I am pleasantly surprised that you are. I hope that you talking about it will bring it more into the mainstream. Yeah. Like you say, get more people aware that they can make these choices and put pressure on their companies to yeah. give them a, a choice in their... It's, that's the thing. I just sort of don't know what to do with my money, really. So I'm tr- trusting other people. I'm single, don't have any kids, live in Birmingham in a house that I bought for 280 grand. Well, well, I don't really buy things. I bought a Lexus, feel like a prick for that. <laughs> That's, I mean, what else do I do? You know, I know, I, I, sorry, I haven't read the Financial Times that often, but I know there's a feature which is, isn't there at the weekend where it's like how to spend it, that, right? Yes, yes. And it's haven't. just for people who've got loads of cash to just like buy a yacht or whatever. Maybe I'll buy a yacht. Is that a good investment? I don't know if it's so much a good investment to mm. buy a yacht. It's certainly a very good way of, you know, chucking a lot of mm. money in it. How much is a yacht? Oh, like millions. Low end. Oh, okay. Yeah, tens there. of tens of millions. I'm not there yet. Joe's yacht-free lifestyle hasn't stopped him from changing the blueprint for consumer advocacy programmes and taking on big companies, such as the yoghurt brand Yop. He thinks that too much emphasis is put on the consumer making the right choices and that corporations should be the ones to change their ways. One issue, actually, that is key to the Yop story that I think is really important is that as consumers, we absolutely, and individuals, should be mindful of our impact on the environment. But really, the change has to come from those companies. They have to stop producing things that are bad for the environment. And it's about putting pressure on those companies to, to, to be more mindful of that and more mindful of the environment. I, I do sort of slightly resent the kind of the onus being on the consumer to mm. do and make the right choice. Because often it's expensive to make the right choice as well, and yeah. not everyone has that option. And it's a sort of, I think it was, I'm going to sound like a tosser here, but I've known Chomsky um, talked about this. Oh, who does she think she is, Noam Chomsky? Noam Chomsky talked about it's sort of trick that capitalism has sort of played by telling you like, oh, you can make a right decision if you buy this product, but it's on you to make the decision. And mm. actually it should be, 
the company just doing the right thing anyway in the first place, rather than giving it over as an option to you and putting all the onus on you. Perhaps his most iconic pressure campaign against a company involved Joe completely reinventing himself by legally changing his name to Hugo Boss, as he told the BBC. Good morning, Hugo Boss. Thank you for calling me Hugo Boss. I'm going to have to get used to it. Why have you changed your name legally? So, Hugo Boss is also a company, I believe, and they uh, there's a small company called Boss Brewing in Swansea who are a little new business, and uh, they tried to make a trademark for a couple of their beers, and Hugo Boss sent them a cease and desist letter, which is like a legal letter that basically says stop doing what they think is alleged illegal activity. And I think it's sort of a massive company taking on a little company, and it's not fair and nobody's going to confuse a beer with Hugo Boss. I don't think I'd splash myself with Heineken in the morning on my neck but maybe you know maybe I will. So I thought they clearly don't like their name being used. They clearly they've sent dozens of these to small businesses, charities. They really like What is interesting the alleged illegal activity is use of the word boss. Yeah. Yeah. Not not the the brewery's in Swansea is not the Hugo Boss brewery. No, it's it's literally boss boss brewery. Boss. Yeah. So I thought about it and so I thought... So no one how... can use the word boss according to Hugo Boss? Well, no, and now I'm Hugo Boss. I'd actually prefer it if people <laughs> didn't as well. I've got... It's what amazing gonna, what happens what when you get the name. What are they going to do to you? Well, yes, yeah, so I've changed my name by deed poll. Yeah. I really didn't expect the reaction that's happened. I didn't expect to be here. I was in the bath about an hour ago. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you so There's much. There's the deed poll certificate showing you actually yeah. have legally changed your name. <laughs> I've legally changed my name. And it's a headache, I've got to tell you. There's so many things you have yeah, to do. Yeah, but it's not about you. It's not what, about me. what do you want Hugo Boss to do or not do? I would like them to stop doing this, stop mm. sending these cease and desist letters, because no-one's confusing these two things. They're not confusing these two brands. But also, I'd really like them to give the... Because Boss Brewing have spent £10,000 in legal fees. They've had to rebrand, they've had to change labels. It's been very expensive for a small business. So I'd like them to give them their money back, really, yeah. and also promise to stop. And an apology would be nice, Hugo. If you could apologise, that'd be great. With his unique style of consumer campaigning... Joe has also started to raise awareness around a less-than-glamorous utility that's become vital during lockdown, broadband. Well, bafflingly, this episode, we have a whole episode on, on broadband, and we created a, um, a national day, which is National My Broadband is Crap Day, which was celebrated around the country by many people who have crap broadband. And um, as a result of it, I ended up sort of in a discussion with Ofcom, and have been appointed by Ofcom as their broadband SAR, <laughs> which is a role that they've completely created, uh, invented. But um, yeah, so I'm now the broadband SAR. Gosh, breaking news. A SAR is born. And um, I'm, yeah, I'm chuffed about that. So yeah, I'm, I don't really know what the role involves. Well, I was going to say, what do, you have to, what do you have to do? It's an unpaid role as well, which I'm furious about. But basically it's about sort of promoting uh, broadband Essentially, what they're Ofcom are doing is they're promoting how people can switch. And we had literally the head of Ofcom on the show, which is everyone at Channel Four was quite nervous about because they didn't really didn't want me to piss her off. And I was sort of asking her what swear words she was going to let me slip in now as the broadband star when I go onto um, television programs. The answer is none. Yeah, she had amazing tips about. I didn't realise, you know, even your Christmas tree lights, if they're in between your router and your what you're connecting with, Christmas tree lights can totally disrupt the signal. And so, yeah, just simple things like that. But yeah, it, it's about shopping around and looking for it. On one of your first shows, you raised 
awareness of something that we've actually covered on the podcast. This is a really nasty fraud that's still happening uh. today, unfortunately. Number spoofing. When you think that your bank's phoning up, the yeah. fraudster says, check the number, looks like the bank's number. Now, you had a lovely nurse um, who um, came on your show, Claire mm. Leslie, Claire who Leslie, had yeah. lost £11,000 taken mm. out. I mean, when they played that call, the recording of the call, when she realised that she'd been scammed, you know, it was impossible really not to to, to well up. It's um, yeah, horrible. Really, really horrible crime. We have had um, Jenny, a guest on the FT Money Trade podcast recently, exactly the same thing, banks refusing to pay out. Now, you decided to play a spoof on the head of NatWest Bank at that time, Ross McEwen. Tell us about mm. that. Well, yes, she, uh, Claire Leslie was scammed out of this cash and it came out of a NatWest account, a NatWest owned by RBS. And when she appealed to them, they essentially their argument was, well, we can't stop people pretending to be us. See ya. So I thought, okay, well, I'll pretend to be you then. So I set up fortunately Ross McEwen didn't have any social media so I set up um, some social media for him I made it very believable you know uh, put out essentially just retweeted NatWest and RBS stuff just very bland dry stuff that you can expect from a CEO of a bank um, some of my colleagues actually followed you yes I know yes we uh, we got quite a few FT reporters and whatever curious about you know, the new Ross McEwen, what might, what might he be saying? And then gradually started to say things that maybe Ross McEwen wouldn't say. Things like, I've got a smelly bum bum. Yes. Which became an article in the Metro newspaper, that RBS boss Ross McEwen <laughs> claims to have a smelly bum bum. I should point out that I sent that tweet after a few beers and was called very quickly by someone at Channel 4 and told me to delete it, which I did, but the Metro snapped it up before I... They're very fast, yeah. It was only up for about an hour, but that was enough. The things I do when I've had a beer change the world. <laughs> and yeah, he, uh, to his credit, can't comment on his bum bum. I mean, this is the thing the Channel 4 lawyers are saying, like, oh, you can't say stuff if you haven't got proof of it. And I said, like, I would love to be in a court of law disputing that. <laughs> disputing the the bum bum of Ross McEwen, like it would ever get to that point. And yeah, to, to his credit, I, th I don't think he directly, but someone from his office got in touch with Claire Leslie and informed her that they were giving her a full refund uh, of the 11 grand. It sort of set a bit of a precedent. We trust them with our money. And they're often making loads of money. They seem to be fine. You know, when you think of a banker, I don't I don't worry about them. They have a responsibility to provide a service that is safe and that, you know, doesn't, isn't vulnerable to fraud. Joe's own chosen career is a notoriously difficult profession when it comes to making ends meet. How did you manage the kind of precarious finances of your chosen career in yeah. the earlier days? It, the disparity is quite stark, really. There's a lot of people you know, who are really scraping away. And then there's the few people who have kind of got profile who are doing well. And then there is, or was before COVID, this sort of middle group of people who are earning good money, really, from playing clubs. And you probably never heard of them unless you're a comedy kind of connoisseur. But, you know, there's comedy clubs up and down the country that will be paying you, you know, a few hundred quid for a show, do two or three of those a week. It's decent, you know, decent... Um, salary but I when I started out I was kind of juggling two jobs so I had 
a little job that I worked in a theatre selling ice creams and then tiny gigs that would give me 30 quid here and there. I used to do graphic design as well, so I was designing posters for people and logos, things like that. And so I was sort of making money from different places and scraping by. Definitely had a few conversations with my agent where I was like, does that gig money come in? Because I don't very much need it. But I am wildly privileged in the fact that, I mean, mum and dad aren't rich, but they, you know, live comfortable middle-class lives and definitely could bail me out. And I always knew that I could go home and, you know, sleep there and I didn't have to, you know, I'd always have a roof over my head. I think it's a problem with a lot of industries, but definitely with comedy, that it's not necessarily accessible because you have to put a lot of hours in where you're not really getting paid. Not necessarily that accessible to people on lower incomes and from low income backgrounds. So, yeah, uh, kind of having done it, you know, uh, with those unpaid spots, which you do all the time. And sometimes, and I really, if you're a new comic, don't do these gigs. Some clubs will uh, get you to pay to perform or you have to kind of make sure that you bring along enough friends, whatever. No good comedy club will ever ask that of you, so never accept that. And do you have any money rules that you follow in your own life? Yeah. But Sarah Millican has a few, what people refer to as Millican's Law, and one of them is if you've had a bad gig, you are allowed until 11am the next day to do whatever you like about it. You can wail about it, tweet about it, call friends, cry. But then at 11am the next day, you're on to the next thing. It's gone. But another part of that rule is if you've had a bad gig, spend the money on something you want. Treat yourself. And um, I adhere to that very much so. What, um, what things have you bought? Well, I I did a corporate. I, I don't ever do corporates now because I, I only ever did the two and they both didn't sit right with me. And the first was where I had to do a gig on a flight and I agreed to it on the basis that the people on the flight would know some comedy was happening and that there would be a good speaker system. Neither of those things were true. Got on this flight between London and Edinburgh and just essentially stood up as if I was taking them hostage <laughs> with this speaker that was powered by AA batteries. Uh, it was contracted to do 10 minutes and I did 2 minutes and 43 seconds, they told me. A horrendous experience. Awful, awful experience. The payment for that was a few hundred quid and flights to anywhere in the world. So I took me and my friend to, we went to like an American road trip with those flights, which was great fun. And uh, I bought myself this quite expensive necklace that I had had my eye on. Oh. So I really treated myself with that. So what are Joe's tips for dealing with a grievance against a company? Kick up a fuss, but choose an interesting way to do it. I would say that Yes, uh, you know, I do have um, an, a high number of followers on social media. But even if you don't, brands are scared of social media. And strangely, I think you can often have better results than calling or emailing mm. if you just tweet the company publicly and say, what's going on here? This isn't right. A lot of them have automated systems now that sort of catch those responses and whatever. So you do s still get caught up in chatting with bots but it can be more effective but also I think there are a lot of resources that people aren't necessarily aware of like Citizens Advice Bureau and Small Claims Court all of these places but I would encourage people to think outside the box as well about how to approach it you know is, are there ways that you can cheese off these companies there might be things that you've not thought of 
that could, could be weirdly effective, whatever it might be. That's it for Money Clinic Meets with me, Claire Barrett, this week. We hope you enjoyed the interview. If you did, spread the word and leave us a review. We're always looking to chat with people about their money issues for the show. If you're interested in being part of a future episode and are looking for some expert money advice, then email us at money at ft.com. You could also take a peek at our website, ft.com slash money, grab a copy of the FT Weekend newspaper, or follow me on Instagram at Claire B. Money Clinic was produced in London by Persis Love and Josh Gabbett-Dion. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner and our editor is Manuela Saragossa. You heard original tunes this week by Metaphor Music. And finally, our usual disclaimer, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's the small print for now. See you back here next week. Goodbye. <laughs>